Word-Rooted Prayer and Worship. We did eight weeks, basically eight weeks, looking at the subject of prayer from different angles in the last few weeks, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit, how he helps and directs our prayer lives. And the corner we're turning now is I want to start looking at the subject of worship. We'll be in this for about the same amount of time, maybe another seven, eight weeks. And I thought the way I'd introduce it is with the basic question, what should happen when a person meets God? What's supposed to happen when a person meets God? How can you tell if you have? And the text I want to look at is one that's pretty well known, but if you have a Bible, I'd really like you to look it up anyway. Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. I long for the, I, I mean, that's not true. I regret that we're all in electronic Bibles. I, I miss the sound of pages turning. And I think, I wonder if there's anybody with a Bible. Uh, is there anybody really with a Bible on one form or another? You're, you do have Bibles, right? Good going. Good going. Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, what should happen when a person meets God? I have four thoughts, though only two will be covered tonight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high, lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. By the way, if this ever happened in a church service, nobody would ever come back to that church. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. The old King James, I am undone. I kind of like that. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This I've seen God. That's what makes Isaiah say, woe is me. Strange. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's striking. If you haven't thought of it before, this angelic being can't touch that coal unless he uses tongs, but he touches Isaiah's lips with it. I can remember an old gentleman, I, I don't think he comes to this church anymore, but in 925 Davis Drive, he would pray for me before the evening service. I used to preach mostly at night. 
And he would pray, Lord, just touch his lips with a coal off the altar. And I would say, are you crazy? Do you know what that feels like? And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. We used to sing a song a long time ago. Here am I. Come, it came from this. Send me to the nations, remember? As an ambassador for you. The idea was this was like a missionary pitch. It's not, if you read the context. It has nothing to do with missions. You'll see that in a minute. There's a passage of scripture. It never uses the word worship once. Subject is never specifically raised. And yet we all know that Isaiah is very close to the heart of what we think of when we think of the essence of worship because he's describing something that defines, well, what all of our lives as worshipers are all about. He's describing an encounter with God. Isaiah is talking about meeting God. This is ground zero. I mean, when you think about worship in a world drowning in trivia, this is what matters. Think about religion. Why do we go to church? Well, we want to meet God. Why do we pray? We want to hear from God, talk to God. Why do we meditate on the scriptures? Why do we serve? I mean, none of those exercises, when you think about it, has any meaning in and of itself. They only have value to the degree that they, they bring us somehow to God. That's why we do what we do. Countering God, that's what worship means. We know, we know that God is what theologians call omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's close to all of us all the time. You can't get away from God. You can't live life removed from God's presence, but we know that's not the same as worship. When we think about worship, we're not thinking about just the fact that he's everywhere all the time. We're thinking of experiencing his presence. So what should happen when a person encounters God? How will we determine whether the alleged encounter with God is genuine or just subjective, maybe, maybe not? How do we know it isn't just the stirring up of emotions? You can get great effect working with people's emotions, excitement, drama. What's the difference between encountering God and just being stirred up in a religious crowd. Now, as we continue through this, we're going to study something of the theology of worship. What is worship? Is it that important? What should worship accomplish in our lives? We're going to try and look at what the Word teaches about the practice of worship in messages down the road. What should worship look like? How should churches worship? Does it matter? As long as our heart's sincere, can we do whatever we want when we worship? Does the Bible tell us how we're supposed to worship? But before we go too far down the road, this is the passage I wanted to start with. Some key elements of God encounter. 
We'll do two tonight, two next week. So point number one. Remember, there's only two. Before worship is a matter of recognizing God's greatness, I think that's the general drift of much of contemporary worship, the greatness of God. And that's good. I will sing of the greatness of God. But before it's a matter of recognizing God's greatness, it's first of all a matter of recognizing God's authority. I get that in Isaiah 6, 1, and then jumping down to 5, just to save some time. Isaiah writes, and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high, lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 5, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when all the uh, smoke clears and the angels are done shouting and the dust settles, there's only one object at the center of Isaiah's vision. Only one. It's a throne. Saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And if that isn't clear enough, Isaiah kind of GPSs the position of that throne for us. And all he can really say is, I saw this throne. Where was it? Well, 6-1, it was high and lifted up. And he's not talking about the height of the throne. He's talking about the location of it. It's over. This is a throne that is over everything else. There's nothing anywhere in all of the universe that is above this throne. That's what he means when he says the throne, well, it was in this vision, it was really, really high and it was lifted up. It was as high as you can get. And then the vision gets more specific. The person everyone's fussing over isn't some vague eternal spirit or some uncaused cause or the ground of all being or the life spirit of the universe. No, Isaiah sees a king. He sees a king. This being is described as on a throne, and he's a king. He's a king sitting on a throne. Now, we live in North America, and we don't conceptualize monarchies as clearly as some nations. And monarchies, by and large, don't function in quite the full way that they used to function. We think of queens and kings as as more figureheads. But that wasn't so in Isaiah's time. Everyone would know a king because a king controlled all the resources of the kingdom. Predominantly, the king controlled the military, but he was the one person with authority to do anything he wanted with any challenge that came his way. Kings really ruled. It's striking to note the way the context of Isaiah's vision, it it presses the kingship of God with such a sharp edge. We, We find in the very first verse of this chapter, reference to the recent death of Judah's ninth king, Uzziah, in the year King Uzziah died. Most people don't know his story anymore. It's quite a story. He's also known as Azariah. And he reigned over Judah for 52 years. So Isaiah knew what a monarchy was all about because kings chose the lifestyles for the nation, for all their subjects. 
monarchies then didn't have citizens. They had subjects because they were subjugated under the authority of the king. They were in subjection to a king. Everyone knew that the role of a king in those days was to literally rule, really rule. Now, whatever authority King Uzziah had, and however great was his rule, Isaiah had just recently come through a series of actual events that clearly illustrated the authority of this ultimate king on this throne high and lifted up. Uzziah, for all of his great accomplishments, militarily, great success, financial power, came to a place in his life where he didn't obey the instruction of the Lord. He didn't listen to the king on the throne. He didn't rid the land of the idols and the false gods. He was supposed to, he was told to, but he didn't. And then finally, toward the end of his reign, he entered the temple itself. When, when you don't get rid of the idols, you start to think you're in charge. You start to think you have the right to make whatever choices you want to make, to steer your life however you want to steer it. When you ignore the king on the throne, there are umpteen other idols that you can fiddle with. Toward the end of his reign, he entered the temple itself. He took upon himself the role of the priest for all the people. And God immediately struck him with leprosy. And he died a lonely, forgotten exile, this great king from all of his own people. Now, all of this is deeply stamped in Isaiah's mind. Remember, Uzziah has just died. This is all on Isaiah's mind as he gazes at this throne, this vision of this throne, high and lifted up. There are earthly kings, like Azariah, and then and there's this king. And they're not the same. The greatest earthly power in Isaiah's world has been reduced to a bleeding, ulcerous recluse because, well, he forgot about the throne of God. He didn't deny God. He, he pursued his own glory and ignored the God we're supposed to be coming to in all of our worship, the God sitting on the throne. What, what happens? What happens when we forget the throne of God? Forget Isaiah right now. Now, right now. What happens when we forget the throne of God? What happens when we start to live for our own glory. Well, we're not all struck with leprosy, that's for sure. I mean, we get away with it. We can live with self-glory and get away with it for quite a while, but there really are devastating consequences. Let me just read you a paragraph Here's what this writer says about self-glory. When we forget the glory of God, the king on the throne, and live for self. Self Self-glory 
will make you an easily irritated, critical, and judgmental parent. Self-glory will turn a marriage into a war of who gets what they want first. Self-glory will make you an exhausting and entitled friend. Self-glory will keep you from being satisfied and make it more natural for you to complain than to be thankful. Self-glory will make you more known for your demands than for your humble service. Self-glory will cause you again and again to take credit for what you could never have earned or produced on your own. Self-glory will make you threatened and envious of the success of others. Self-glory will turn you into a church consumer instead of a committed participant in its actual work. Self-glory deceives us, distracts us, entraps us, and ultimately destroy us. Self-glory leaves behind a mountain of broken people and things. It has never once produced any good fruit. Here's the thing. So we hear that. We go, well, I don't want to be like that. I, I want to be better than that. And the thing is, by your resolve and I, by my resolve, fallen as we are, we don't have it within ourselves just to willfully change from being those kinds of people that I just read about. You know how that happens? The only way that happens? It's coming before that throne. Coming before the throne of God. Woe am I. Far from self-glory, i tell you what I am. I'm undone. <laughs> Nothing will humble you and transform you like coming before the throne. This is all recorded in such blazing detail, so we'll never forget it. The, 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 the lesson of the throne of God. <clears throat> do worship passionately. Do worship expressively. Do worship joyfully. But never forget to worship carefully. God is loving. He's not tame. He doesn't serve. He is served. This is not a God you can refuse homage without consequence. And I, I actually think we need to recapture that truth in our day. Much of the worship, we do very well here at Cedarview. I'm not criticizing. But much, I'm talking about the church, not this church. Much of the worship I see today focuses on the greatness of God, which is not quite the same as his authority. The love of God, the beauty of his presence. It's not quite the same thing. Much of our contemporary congregational worship focuses either on the beauty of God's presence or the vastness of his love, and all of that is absolutely true because God is eternally loving. His presence is beautiful beyond telling, but that much is still incomplete. Quick as you can, quick as you can, 
Think of how many, I'm not talking hymns. Think of how many worship songs we sing that have the word judgment in them. Can you think of one? Quick. Can you think of one except behold uh, before the throne of God above? The wrath of God was satisfied. Strike that one out. Think of a worship course that has the word wrath in it. My guess is you probably can't. And the, the problem there isn't in any particular church. The problem is they aren't written. And if there were, people don't feel quite so spiritually comforted singing them. Well, Pastor Don, you know, you're getting old. And I think you're getting a bit picky. Don't you think we believe in judgment and sin and punishment and all those things? I, I do. I do. I think we do generally believe. My concern is a little bit different. What begins to happen gradually over 20 years when the conscious picture of God that we form after two or three generations the truths that the church used to hold dear just get thinned out. Here's an experience I had not all that long ago. I'm talking to a person, a Christian person, professing Christian person, who is clearly just living in an adulterous relationship, wicked on so many levels. We talk, we talk in my office. And I say to him, this is wrong. We go through scriptures and he's got an answer for absolutely everything. And I say to him, you know what? If you continue to live like this, you're going to go to hell. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't, it said he looked at me like, what, what, what? A, that someone would say it, because we don't use the H word anymore. But it was, it was the look like, well, it's not even on the radar to think about those things. Forget about how much sin is committed, how persistently it's committed, how far from God a person wanders. Just the idea of eternal punishment is not even on the radar anymore in the minds of so many people. Now, here's my question to you. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. For 25 years, we've been worshiping a God, never talking about judgment or wrath. Until it isn't denied, it just evaporates and wafts away. Until you actually feel judgmental if you ever even talk to somebody about the possibility of hell. That's how far those things drift from our consciousness, and our worship has a lot to do with it. Let's face it. Look at the world around us for all of its blithering about in God we trust and all sorts of things like that. We pass laws. We redefine the family. We redefine marriage. We live together common law because the laws of the land say we don't have to pass through the ritual of the marriage ceremony. We profess belief in God while we fashion our own lifestyles. And the church is starting, starting to buy into this mental muck. And all the while we're singing about God, but in more therapeutic, sentimental kind of ways. He's never going to let me down. Really, when did, when did you become the center of all of this activity? Is it really all about you not being disappointed in God? Or is it 
See, God doesn't serve me. I serve him. I'm not on the throne. He is high and lifted up, a king on a throne. We live to serve. Good worship, and we have good worship at Cedarview. Good worship should prepare us for the throne of God while we're still on earth because we're going to stand before that throne once we leave this world or when Jesus comes again. Isaiah has this vision, okay? The throne of God, high and lifted up. I said I was going to get to this. Here am I. Send me. He has this vision of the throne. Why does God reveal himself to Isaiah this way right at this point in history? Why does God specifically show Isaiah this curtain pulled back, the angels covering their faces, the king on the throne? Why does, why does Isaiah get that picture right when he gets it? It's because God has a job for him. And he's going to send him. And God's call to Isaiah is not to raise funds for Child Care Plus. He's told by God that he has to go to his own people and proclaim that God is going to bring judgment upon them for their idolatry and for their immorality, their failure to bow before that very throne that God showed Isaiah. The people aren't acknowledging the throne anymore. They're praying, they're going to the temple, but not the throne. And so, God says, here's your job. You go to those people and you pronounce judgment. My wrath is going to be poured out. And Isaiah doesn't want to do it. What would make him do it? Well, because... The order came from the throne. <laughs> point number two, I said I had only two points. After emphasizing caution in worship, remembering the throne, remembering who serves whom. After emphasizing caution in worship, the next most important ingredient is diligence in worship. What should happen when a person meets God? The throne is at the center of everything. If you miss that, you miss everything. Secondly, diligence in worship. Look at verses 2 to 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Aren't you glad we get this record of what Isaiah saw? Like, how would we know if, if this wasn't recorded in God's word? Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So they're hovering. And, and one called to another. We don't know how many there are exactly, but one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the foundations of the thresholds shook at the sound of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
even in the worship of these great heavenly beings, sinless, not like we, these great holy heavenly beings, they, there's nothing but humility. They can't, they, in all of their perfection, they can't look directly at the one on the throne. I love that mention of them covering their faces with their wings in verse 2. So, is this worship, how do you think they interpreted this? Do you think this worship was, A, was it fun? This wasn't some experience they were seeking for some self-relaxing mental state. They just couldn't help but cover their faces. This God is, he's too big, he's too high, he's too bright. They don't have to pretend to be humbled before this God. They hide their faces in a gesture that forever reminds people like me about the removal of self before the throne of God. The only worshiper, the only worshiper who remains self-absorbed in his or her own personal fulfillment is the one who's just never really come to that throne. That throne. And notice also the corporate dimension of worship. Did you catch it? It's in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Did you notice when they said, holy, 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 they weren't talking to the one on the throne at all. They were shouting out to each other. One called out to another, verse 3. It was as though the holiness and authority and purity of God, it, it, it couldn't be experienced adequately just privately. They're pulled together as they are drawn to the throne. Something had to be expressed together with others. The greatness of their experience of God would be diminished if it was just private. It had to be corporate. What I really want to highlight in this second point, though, is the importance of diligence. Theologians speculate about the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy. Some think it relates to the triune nature of the Godhead. God certainly is three in one, but the text doesn't really say that's the cause of their threefold repetition. I kind of like the old words of John Calvin on this verse. If you never had anybody quote Calvin to you in a Pentecostal church, He says, this repetition rather points to the unwearied perseverance. As if the teaching is, the angels never cease from their melody in singing praises to God. As if the holiness of God supplies us with inexhaustible reasons for worship. I think the longer you live the Christian life, you'll, you'll learn. I'm just starting to learn in my own experience that the biggest battle isn't really becoming a person of worship. The biggest battle is remaining a person of worship. 
continuing over time, without growing cold, without becoming settled in a routine, keeping something spiritually alive. These celestial beings, they don't just bow and they don't just exclaim. They bow and wonder and exclaim continuously. They, 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 they come to the throne and never quite grow indifferent. They bow and exclaim persistently in a wonderful, sacred rhythm. Each one seems to inspire the other as they speak to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. So first, there must be caution and carefulness because we come before a throne. And then secondly, there has to be diligence, constant refreshing in worship because we're encouraged by the praise of others and the fuel of their worship by our own as well. Corporate worship helps push back the dullness and the silence of our own hearts. I need you to worship properly. You need me to worship properly. You can't do it at home by yourself. You can't do it just live streaming. You need to be with the people of God. God calls me to worship not just for my own growth, but for yours. And if we didn't have the teaching of Isaiah, we would get the same thing from the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, we're almost done. Paul said, Paul's got this advice for Christian people. If the Apostle Paul could come into Cedarview Community Church tonight and talk to us about following Jesus, what do you think the Apostle Paul would say about following Jesus right here in Cedarview Community Church? Fortunately, we don't have to guess. This is to the church, Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Here it is. Addressing one another. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul calls the church to this walk of purity and carefulness before the Lord. And one of the ways that happens is we get together and we address one another in our worship. The reason's obvious when we think again about our text in Isaiah 6. Because, because Isaiah, he doesn't just say, I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Hi. That's us. That's us. 
we, we need each other in worship because we share the same need. We encourage one another in worship because we long for the same cleansing. When Isaiah comes before the throne of God, the first thing he sees is a community that needs holiness desperately. Remember this as we press through the next eight or nine teachings on worship. Because Paul links together corporate worship with purity of life. Look carefully then about how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. This is why we address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Content-filled, content-filled corporate worship in song and in word. This is worship, by the way. We don't think that way. We think we're going to have our worship time in a minute when Tom and the band come out. That's the musical portion of worship. This is an act of worship. Hearing the Lord, responding to his word. It doesn't get more godly than that. Corporate worship in song or in word isn't icing on the cake. If we're going to get pure before the Lord, it's the cake. God wants to redeem everything about me and he wants to redeem everything about you and he wants to use your worship to encourage the redeeming of your brothers and sisters in this church. You have to come if you're going to encourage brothers and sisters. You can't do it staying home. You have to come. We joke about it. How many times do I have to go to church, Pastor Don, to go to heaven? <laughs> yeah, gee, witty. And forget, your coming to church might just help get someone else to heaven. And everyone said? And so help us, Lord Jesus, as we turn the corner and launch into this study on worship. What should happen when people meet God? More than anything else, <clears throat> here's what we need to know about God. He's on a throne, high and lifted up. We serve him. He doesn't serve us. And that worship has this corporate element, this corporate element that helps purify each other's lives by reflecting Jesus in praise and glory and honor. So bless us as a church. Instruct us. Fill our minds and hearts, both our minds and our hearts, as we come before the throne of God when we worship. In Jesus' name I pray. And the church said... <clears throat>